From 11FS, this is InsureTech Insider News. Today we bring you UK insurers to be banned from offering cheaper deals to new customers. Mandatory insurance coverage for medical cannabis now expands to more than 50 million Colombians. And Lil Uzi Vert says his insurance company nearly cut him off over forehead diamond piercing. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 109. I'm Nigel Walsh. Today's show is a new show where we'll be taking some of the most interesting happenings in insurance and insuretech from the past few weeks. Joining me today is John Bean, Client Director and Insurance Lead for 11FS. How are you doing today, John? Very well, thank you, Nigel. Uh, Happy New Year to everyone on the call uh, and Happy New Year to those out there listening in. Uh, Yeah, doing very well. Excited for the new year. It's definitely the first one back, but it also feels like we've been back forever. I don't know if it's anyone else, but it's like the Happy New Year thing finished last week. We're now back into back into normal mode again. So yeah, Happy New Year, everyone. I should have said that as well. We're also accompanied by some amazing guests as always. First up, we welcome back Sophie Winwood, early stage investor at Anthemis. How are you doing today, Sophie? Yeah, very good, thank you. Feeling very privileged to be on the first step of, of 2022. 2022, new year, new start, no more talk about the dreaded sea. It's onwards and upwards and we're just going full steam ahead. So welcome back. Thank you for joining us. And finally, we're also joined by the most energetic man in insurance, period, Dr. Robin Kiera, CEO of Digital Scouting. How are you doing today, Robin? Thank you very much for having me. I'm super excited, fired up, and I cannot wait to see and hug you all this year. I am looking forward to a hug, I have to say, especially in that jumper. But let's leave that for everyone else to guess what jumper you're actually wearing. Thank you all for joining. Let's get on with the show. So first up, we have the long-awaited UK insurers to be banned from offering cheaper deals to new customers. This is from The Guardian and reported almost everywhere. Uh, It's the biggest shakeup in the insurance industry for decades. And it took place on the 1st of January with insurers banned from quoting policyholders a higher price to renew their home or motor insurance than they would offer a new customer's. After years and years of complaints that customers who regularly switched insurers were paying significantly lower premiums than those who renewed, the FCA has said they must be offered the same price. The move is expected to be bad news for households that chase the lowest new customer premiums annually. However, the FCA expects it to result in lower renewals for loyal customers who renew automatically, typically saving around £120 each year. Now, this is huge. I don't even know where to start on this one. Price walking or the loyalty penalty has been talked about by the UK insurers for, I'm going to say donkey's years. And I think things like um, the aggregators that are out there and the price comparison websites have forced those that are able and willing to get a better price always. I think we've almost been conditioned in the UK and I'll come back, uh, Robin, to, to other territories. But in the UK, it feels like we've been conditioned to say, here's my renewal quote, let's go check it out in 60 seconds on an online comparison site and get 90 quotes back within, you know, 60 seconds or so. So Sophie, can I start with you? What's your take on on this? Long overdue, interference unnecessarily or something different? I think absolutely long overdue. I think people being punished, um, you know, there is something about complacency and not, and not willing to do it. But you also have to think about you know, some of the worst hit were the older generation who just weren't aware that this was even possible to find a cheaper deal. And if you look at some of the stats on the the price increase for loyal customers, it's for home insurance, it's like two and three X. 
which is pretty pretty astonishing. So I think it's um I think it's a really long overdue. I think we'll have to wait and see how this will play out in terms of overall cost of policies because something has to give. You know, insurers will probably end up increasing the kind of you know uh, overall policy um, amounts to kind of take into account for this charge. But I think it's a, a, a step in the right direction. Interesting, John. What about you? Is this, is this something that's been around for a long time, or is it you know? I, I will say I remember, I'm showing my age here, going back to the yellow pages and calling people bit by bit by bit to work out what the cheapest quote might be. Has this always been around? Is this normal? I think there's always been a desire to attract new customers through different means and incentives, which typically would have been discounting or free bundled offers. So I don't think that is anything new. I think what really accelerated things was, as as you mentioned, or became the go-to-market model was the introduction of price comparison websites because all of a sudden it made easier for customers to shop around, easier for them to switch if they didn't think they were getting a fair price. So what it did do though, is, as a result of that, was create a race to the bottom for insurers, whereby new customers were rewarded and older customers were penalised. And I agree with Sophie, I think it's absolutely, it's time to change. It's interesting. It's one of those ones that feels like technology has enabled us to digitise the thing that we used to do previously in terms of a phone call to get a quote. And to be fair, whether we're buying insurance, a car, a new TV, we're always used to shopping around no matter what. So it doesn't feel like it's unrealistic. I think what the difference here is the penalty that was given for folks are just stuck and constantly renewed time and time again. Um, Sheldon Mills, the executive director of consumers and competition at the FCA said, the rules were expected to save consumers 4.2 billion over the next 10 years. So that's quite a significant impact. He goes on to say, our our interventions will make the insurance market fairer and make it work better. Insurers can no longer penalise customers who stay with you. Uh, You can still shop around and negotiate a better deal, but you won't have to switch to avoid being charged a loyalty premium. So, Robin, one for you. Is this something that's consistent in the local area for you or is this something that's unique to the UK? So systematically discrimination or um, loyalty penalty, which sounds for me an oxymoron in itself such a systematic thing we don't have but to be quite honest we have old policies that are um, expensive compared to new ones or even worse have certain risks that are not included like imagine a household insurance that's 20 year old but doesn't have a cyber security component in it so we have these things and we had some scandals where you know insurers were offering new policies to new clients which were not necessarily cheaper but had 10 times more coverage and that are things actually um, we had but i think we have a total wrong discussion in that field i think insurance can decide do we want to go down the road chasing to the lowest price then we need to discuss all these things or shouldn't we actually talk about how can we increase our service, provide digital products and services to our clients that are really exciting or also invest heavily in our brand so that they come and buy our policy even though it's a little bit uh, more expensive. Because I think we are only looking at certain segments of society that are shoppers. If you look at studies around the world, you have different segments of clients. You have some that are hardcore price shoppers and yes, for them it's relevant. But for others, it's They want to like the brand. They want to have certain service. They want just that it goes quickly. Fun story. I just received a a, a letter from an insurer where we had some administrative stuff going on. And he sent me a letter and said, "Uh, Dr. Kira, you sent me, you'd registered two times. I'm like, yeah, and now? 
you know, you know, don't give me the information, give me the service, how to change it. So I think um, we need to really focus not only on the clients and customers that look at price, but also those who look at service, at brand and value. And to be quite honest, to uh, participate at the race to the bottom, I think is not very healthy for any business. You know, you've, you've got me thinking, though, because the, the, the word itself, PCW or price comparison website, isn't necessarily the best proxy for getting the thing that you want. I don't see us going online looking for a price comparison website for a brain surgeon, because frankly, we'd want the person that's going to be able to help us get through the thing that we want, which goes back to education in my mind. I'm always saying, well, are we, are we clear about what we're picking up or not? The other thing that you mentioned, and maybe John, for you quickly, if I may, given some of your background, is the product itself. And often we saw products on PCWs or elsewhere different to those that were available directly. Do you, do you think this will drive a change in the products people are offered? Or I guess, how do you ensure those benefits end up with the customers rather than being taken out of price? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm quite excited because I do think it will introduce a number of new products to the market. On what Robin was saying, I think, you know, some people will always shop around for the best price. And actually, I do think we'll see new three-star de facto products come into the market, offering slightly less at that lower price point to fill that space. I do think, though, equally, we'll also see new products coming whereby we'll try and entice you direct. So you don't have to go through the price comparison website. And this comes to, actually, can I offer a differentiated product based on an additional service or brand? I don't think price comparison websites will go away. Uh, to your point, Nigel, at the start, we've been conditioned, you know, it's almost in our behavior now. For 10 years, we've been using these. We'll always go to price comparison websites to check, are we getting a fair price? Are we getting a fair deal? But I think as we go through a couple of cycles of renewals, that might become less and less. Uh, and as though it's older books, as they move off unfair insurance, we might actually see uh, people remaining and not using price comparison websites as much. That's a really, really interesting one. And actually, for those in the UK or listening in the UK, you'll all be familiar with a gentleman called Martin Lewis from Money Saving Expert. Martin Lewis, consumer champions, probably the best way to describe him, absolutely fantastic, talks about... Um, his best guess is that firms won't just cut renewal prices to match those for newbies. Rates will actually meet nearer the middle, as happened in 2012 when insurers were barred from gender pricing discrimination. And this will mean that savings from switching will likely be relatively uh, re reduced. We're still unsure of how this will work exactly, but prices for switches are very likely to be relatively higher for January, he said. Sophie, your, your thoughts on that? Is that something that we're going to see again? Because I think, uh, again, I have different perspectives on the gender price directive, but it feels like in that instance women would, were penalised for being women in that instance, even though they were better drivers? Yeah, I think so. I think, look, this is just kind of uh, what happens in, in these sort of um, situations where it actually ends up coming uh, closer to the mean. And I don't necessarily think that that is uh, a bad thing. But I think it does, it's, it's an interesting point because when you don't have a necessarily a price differentiation, then, you know, coming back to some of the things that John said, where are you winning these customers and how are you winning? Is it brand? Is it uh, offering? Is it, uh, especially with home insurance, some sort of package or bundling deal? So I think that statement, I, I imagine, will be correct. And then we'll, we'll start to see how kind of, yeah, kind of other people differentiate themselves. It's a really interesting one. I'll finish with this before we move on to the next story. And that was that all good news comes with some bad news. And almost to your point, Ursula Gibbs, director of Compare the Market, said it looked as though insurers have been playing a clever pricing game. 
well, I think that's just called insurance, isn't it? Uh, and keeps premiums lower in recent months to try and lock in as many customers as possible. So car insurance premiums for the last year, the last 12 months, have fallen by £80. So you could argue part of that might be pandemic and less driving, but part of it might be a way to lock customers in now so that they, when they do go to renew, there's not much of a, an uplift elsewhere. So clever pricing game or just being smart because of a whole host of other factors. I'd probably argue a little bit of a, a, a little bit of both, but really interesting to see. Long overdue, it feels like consensus-wise, uh, and like Robin said, how do we get away from uh, price comparison to value and, and education? I think is critical. So uh, let's see. That might all be taken away by things like embedded insurance, but that's not for the show. Um, next up, and actually related to our first story, is Marker Study snaps up compare the market's owners insurance arm in a four hundred million pound deal. Uh, this from Sky News, one of Britain's most acquisitive insurance companies has struck a £400 million deal to snap up the group which distributes policies for the likes of Marks & Spencer's Retail and the RAC. It will represent another major milestone for Marks Liddy, which two years ago became the UK's sixth largest motor insurer with the acquisition of co-ops insurances underwriting business. The company serves more than 3 million policyholders across a range of insurance products. Um, this is huge, I think. And actually, going back to our previous comments around the role of aggregators, Sophie, given it's in the world of M&A, I'm going to start with you, if you don't mind. What, what's your take here? I mean, this is going to double the customer base for marketing. That's a big move. It's huge, right? Like, to double your business in one acquisition, it's like, I feel like it happens, but it really it seems to be uh, quite a... Uh, in the insurance industry, very, being very acquisitive, you seem to see these quite big mega deals happen a lot. So it's a super exciting um, uh, kind of place to look at. I think, look, it, it seems like a, a very sensible acquisition. There's a lot of sort of cross-sell and upsell opportunities between the two um, and that they're kind of do seem to be mutually beneficial. They've obviously had a pre previous relationship before. So let's hope that the kind of integration is is not as painful as usually these deals are. And I think it's a great start to the year in terms of general M&A activity within the insurance industry. 2020, we actually saw quite a, a big uplift and then 2021 was a little bit down on 2020. And so I think given where we are with the economy and the macroeconomics, I think this year is going to be another Another bumper year for M&A and I think it's a, a great deal to sort of kick off the season. While I've got you very quickly then so a great year for M&A do you see more comparison sites or more organizations like this being acquired? So I think given what we just talked about in the first story, there's going to have to be some consolidation in the market around this distribution strategies, people trying to find an edge, people trying to find synergies to cut out costs in their distribution or find distribu other additional distribution strategies uh, because they can't go through their kind of, you know, safe price comparison websites. So I think there will be some interesting deals being done to, to kind of tap these other um, avenues. Really interesting. Robin, is this something that you see as well in, in region for acquisitions locally? Are we seeing the consolidation of providers to get more customers and scale? Or is this something that's unique to the UK motor market? No, we see that here too. We see two types of uh, consolidation acquisitions. One type is the acquisition out of strength. 
So you see a strong partner inside the country or outside the country wanting to come in who are looking for healthy targets to take over. That's the concept. That's like the acquisition strategy or movement we see right now, now number one. And the second one we see is actually weaker players being bought up. So those with a horrible combined ratio, those with horrible, horrible internal cost, um, those who are struggling, let's uh, talk about life insurers, uh, low interest rates. So that's what we see too. But we have not seen the big surprising, the, the gigantic acquisition. A lot of things are happening in a mute mode, in stealth mode, a lot of insurers are getting rid of their life insurance portfolios or and are looking forward to transfer their closed books to tech providers who very efficiently manage it in order to avoid a runoff, which is, you know, sometimes a little bit disastrous for the client relationship. So that's the things we are seeing. So. Uh, acquisition, uh, aggressive acquisitions from uh, from outsiders or from the inside the uh, inside um, acquisitions or consolidation out of weakness and uh, the special case of life insurance, but also PNC insurance of runoff or similar and close to runoff scenarios. That are, these are the three things uh, we are seeing. Um, a lot is happening behind the scenes, but you know I'm actually waiting for one of the larger ones to consolidate. Uh, we will see that in the um, business reports and uh, profit and loss statements that are coming out uh, actually this spring uh, for, for last year. So I'm really curious um, which candidates we will see emerge an acquisition um, of traditional insurance. But I think until the big, big movements, uh, we have a few years left. It's interesting because you talk about technology platforms there as well. And, and Peter Thompson, the chief exec of BGL Insurance, described the deal as a natural evolution for BGLI and brings together our leading digital distribution, back to the point about technology, with the innovative underwriting capabilities of market study. So those, two, you know, it's almost, uh, it's, a, it's a one plus one equals three there, which I, which I like quite a lot. But Nigel, we have seen mergers and acquisitions that look like one plus one was two, but it's just one plus one was minus two billion. <laughs> um, yeah, come on. Uh, because I mean, everybody of us has worked inside the insurance industry and um, merger and acquisition is great. And I think it's also difficult enough to pull the deal through, but to really unify companies, not only in a financial me uh, measure, but actually in a, you know, technical, organizational, somebody who says he's going to unify, you know, distribution and underwriting of two different companies. Well, if you can pull this off, uh, that would be great. I mean, but it's very, very difficult. Yeah, I, I hear you. Jo John, one for you. I mean, what does this do to the other players in the market, the big motor players, the admirals, the direct lines, the e-shores of the world? What do you think it does to, to the market when you see the scale and capability of this coming at you? I think it certainly makes them concerned. I mean, we've just discussed it could be harder to win new customers. If you can't heavily discount for that first year to win new customers and you're trying to protect your back book, one easy way to get customers is obviously to buy them, which is exactly what they've gone and done. And if switching becomes less prominent, you could get longer tenure customers, you could get more lifetime value out of those customers. So anybody that can take 3 million customers or a big chunk away from somebody else, and it's going to be harder for them to entice those over to you, I think, yes, it's going to make them look over their shoulders. And and as Sophie said, I think it's going to be a hot year for M&As. I can see more of these deals on more books of business being bought and actually people consolidating their positions, knowing that if they can offer a good product and service at fair value, so you don't have to go back to the price comparison websites, you can actually get a lot longer tenure from their customers. So 
actually having that customer, that volume really puts you in a good position. Well, so there's two interesting things on that here, actually. And one, Sophie, if I may come back to you, it's the price being paid by Mark Study, which is uh, it's expected to be funded in part by a capital injection from Poland Street Capital. Its PE backer is below the market expectations when BGL appointed their bankers from Venture's advisory partners. But it's also understood that the deal has options for further payments that could take the price to more than 500 million. I guess two things in this. One is we're continuing to see the influx of PE money here, number one. And number two, what's your view on, or, or is there a view on valuations of books like this, where they are pure distribution or pure motor or, or elsewhere? So is there still a huge influx of money? And B, what's happening to valuations right now? Yeah, so I guess on, on the first point, I think there's always been a, a pretty solid private equity um, interest in the insurance industry. You know, steady cash flows, um, you know, reasonable amount of comps and a good understanding, if you are in the industry, of, of how these businesses work, paired with this kind of, of tailwind of digitization, which is increasingly nudging up valuations of insurers, which were typically sort of, you know, in the financial services industry, then kind of coming up into into having some sort of tech um, multiple on top of it. Um, so I think what that you know, uh, insurance companies like this will never be short of of having cash that they can leverage to to make acquisitions, especially if you're doubling your customer base. So I think that you know, I, I'm sure we'll see a lot of lot of that to come. In, in terms of valuations, I think it's interesting that it was undervalued. It, it implies it wasn't a massively competitive but, um, process. And it also implies that potentially because of the relationship that they had in between, they were able to negotiate a, a better deal. And, you know, up to 500, probably some sort of earn out there or, or additional cash to be invested. I think in terms of valuations, I always struggle to kind of gaze into my crystal ball about this. I think, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how the market sort of reacts to, and I don't know if, you know, the, the recent insurtechs kind of performing terribly in the public markets is having an impact on these sort of deals and valuations. But I think it will, it will really depend on the company's ability to emphasize the tech angle rather than the insurance angle, um, which will kind of make a difference on, the, on these valuations. It's really interesting. And actually, the reason I mentioned it specifically, of course, is the, the probably most recent or similar example is the Bain Capital acquisition or taking private of Eshaw back in 2018 for 1.2 billion. And I think they were roughly 2.3 or thereabouts million customers. So it's a huge deal, again, in a very, very big, well-defined, mature market. You, you raise one more point before we move on, and maybe Robin, one for you is, what does this do to the insure tax? Does this make it harder for them or easier for them to engage or, or much more? I think that's a total different uh, ball game because the situation for InsurTech really depends on uh, the, the individual situation of the InsurTech. I mean, I think that's uh, also uh, the expertise of, of Sophie. So I think it really depends on the on the individual situation. 
What I think is quite interesting is really the situation of publicly traded Intratech. I think that's something um, I, I would love to go deeper into and as to hear what is who thinking about. I personally have the, the um, impression that a lot are waiting how things are playing out and who moves into a positive direction first. We'll see positive development and a negative will see negative. But that's just my you know amateur view on the things. But uh, I'm not ready to uh, have an overall judgment uh, on on this overall topic yeah fair 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 well with that let's take a quick break and we will be back very soon what do the best user journeys and customer experiences in financial services look like the first annual 11fs pulse report looks back at some of the best customer experiences of 2021 and is filled with insight from leading fintechs such as plaid starling and crowdcube we also look at predictions from the industry experts on trends that will affect product design in 2022. Head to 11fs.com forward slash pulse report to download the report and see what's hot in FinTech UX today. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. And this one is just for Sarah and I. Sarah, I do hope you're listening. And we have words to say on this. Insurers seek to block injury claims from illegal e-scooter riders. Someone might need to keep me in my seat for this one. So a man, this is from the Times, a man on an e-scooter who had been put into an induced coma after being clipped by the wing mirror of an overtaking London bus will be a test case for the estimated, wait for it, 750,000 two-wheelers used illegally on public roads. A private e-scooter is only legally allowed to be driven on a private land as a result, anyone using one on a public road who sustains an injury might not be able to be successfully sue a motorist, even if it was 100% the fault of the bus or car driver. Only rental scooters involved in official schemes are currently permitted on public roads. I have so much on this one. They are the curse of my life still. And having been out to the US, they are absolutely everywhere. I also believe they are absolutely inevitable. But for now, I'm amazed isn't we've it feels like we've left the toothpaste out of the tube. There's almost a million on the roads that are illegal, which is crazy. Where do we even where, where do we even start with this? You know, the, the man sustained multiple fractured ribs, a dislocated right shoulder, a collapsed lung, followed by pneumonia. It's terrible. He was wearing a high vis jacket, a helmet when the bus driver overtook him on the summer's morning last year. Should insurers cover this or is it the fact that he's breaking the law? They shouldn't at all. I mean, my first thing is, anyone who hasn't read the article, go check it out, it's on the Times. There are over 600 comments on the uh, <laughs> on the article. It's obviously uh, not just you, Nigel, that gets right off about this. <sighs> I mean, it's an illegal activity. If you start insuring, if you start sort of paying out for this, where where do you stop is, is the problem. It's, it's, it's a really difficult one because I can totally feel for it, having been in a... In a bike accident myself, it's it's, it's traumatising. It can like really impact quite a lot of your life. But it's an illegal activity. I, th I don't think there's really much more to say than that. You know, I, I, I'm not I'm not against e-scooters. I, I think anything that can get people out of their cars or part of their commute, I am all for. But there needs to be some clarification and rules in place. I mean, cyclists have rules that they don't always obey them, but they are there. I think. You know, at the moment, we've got thousands. I think somewhere in here, potentially up to a million will be sold before anybody makes a decision on this. 
it's too confusing. Mm. And I don't know why they're delaying with this. You know, we've got the trial. The trial's up and running. I, I don't know if it's successful or not successful. I just think the whole thing is too confusing. And the problem is, is, you know, businesses are suffering, insurers are suffering, because nobody knows which way it's going to turn. So I think the government needs to, to pretty quickly make a decision. Robin, how are we doing in other countries? Are we are we making a better um, or less of a mess of it in other countries, or is it just the UK being a bit slow here? No, but I think the big discussion. I think it's a it's a typical example on how insurers deal with reality. I mean, how many times I went, I was an insurance agent myself and I had to deliver the bad message several times where I need to say, ah, you have an insurance policy with my company, but it's not covered because you see on page 27, there was a line that said when on a Thursday you had oatmeal for breakfast uh, in, 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 in February, then it's not covered when it rains. People don't understand that. And to be quite honest, it's also a trick to say, okay, these scooters are allowed, but not on a public road. I mean, come on, guys, where is this, where is this stuff used? And then we as insurers say, oh, we are insured. We even produce uh, policies for that and include it and make advertisement. Star, but only if it's not used against the law. Come on, guys. Uh, I think we need to be a little bit more honest here. Um, and uh, we need to have uh, policies and products people really understand. And we cannot say, we insure and then have 27,000 exceptions. I'm with you here. I'm, I'm still in awe of some of the comments and, and everything else here. So, uh, so an example is... His legal team at Bolt, Bird and Ken BBK are seeking tens of thousands of pounds in compensation from the bus company's insurers. Ben Pepper, an associate solicitor at BBK, said, My client took sensible precautions and was riding his e-scooter safely when a bus driver knocked him down, causing very serious injury. If he'd been riding a bicycle instead, it is likely that he would have suffered similar injuries. Now, whilst that might be true, Ben, riding a bicycle is not illegal and riding an e-scooter is it's almost like saying, I didn't mean to shoot the man with my live, fully loaded weapon. That's illegal. But the blanks I was carrying that were illegal didn't kill him. I mean, this, of lawyers of all people should be able to see the black and white nature of the rules for this thing. It would have been a different conversation, I'm sure, if he was driving one of the legally trial schemes that have insurance embedded into them by default. So I guess, does this claim crystallize a growing problem, i.e. e-scooters out in public with a lack of adequate laws to keep people safe. Do you think people actually care, John? Maybe one for you. Do You, you said you were for e-scooters. We can have a chat about that later. <laughs> um, but do you think people actually care before they buy them? Is the onus on the individual or should the shops stop selling them? I think half the people that buy e-scooters don't even know they're illegal. I, I think if you were actually to do a poll and ask everybody who'd bought an e-scooter, whether it was themselves or their parents, I think the vast majority would not know they're illegal. And from from the simple fact that they're buying them from sort of high street, well-known branded shops and they're selling them over the counter, I, I think we have to clear that up first. You know, If they are illegal or if there is a trial scheme, there needs to be more done at the point of sale to advise that these are illegal or we need to have more rules in place. Because at the moment, it's just far too confusing for the consumer. It's far too confusing for the retailers selling it. So God only knows what that means for the insurers. And normally I agree with you, Robin, you know, clauses, exemptions, you know, I, I'm not for that. Let's get rid of all of that. But this is just too confusing by the time you even get to the insurer. It, it's a really interesting one. I'll give you one more example, if I may. Uh, and that is 
A girl in the Midlands suffered mild traumatic brain injury when her electric scooter collided with a car on the, on the pavement last summer. It's a whole different conversation about being on the pavement. Uh, on December 14th, the driver's insurers dismissed her claim, stating liability is denied in full. In our opinion, she should not have been riding on the pavement on an illegal e-scooter. And as a result, she drove into our insured's vehicle. I mean, there's a double whammy here. The consistent piece, of course, is that BBK is back and Cheryl Abrams, a partner at BBK, said they're not even entering into a discussion about whether the driver was negligent. It appears that they're saying to the fact that she was on an e-scooter is enough to deny liability. I think that's exactly what they are saying, uh, Cheryl. It's an illegal device. As a net result, she shouldn't be on it. Um, The girl's mother said she'd bought the vehicle at Halfords, the high street chain, as a Christmas present costing nearly £400 and had no idea it was illegal. It was just a toy. Now, I've actually tweeted this before because I've been into Halfords. I'm a big fan of the store. And it says firmly in the store that these are illegal. And on the first page of Halfords' website, it's got a legal warning. E-scooter law not to be used on public roads, cycle paths or pavements. Only private land with the landowner's consent. So I don't think it could be much clearer, to be fair. I mean, they're doing something to, to stop people just buy them. Sophie, do we need to go further? Should they be treated like a gun? If you haven't got a permit, just don't buy them. I think the problem is, is that it is really not being policed. And I think a lot of that is just capacity on, on you know, like we've got bigger wood to chop in terms of like everyone looking after stuff. And so there's just, okay, there's obviously a lot of kind of warnings when you buy it, but then when you're out and about, you know, like I, I, I have friends that have them. No one's really talking about this illegal thing. They're just kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, we go like we, we think it's we know it's illegal, but no one's pulling up on it. And we see loads of people scooting around anyway. And so people are looking at people being like, oh, I guess it says it's illegal. But then I've seen like 10 people today scooting around and they've been fine. So why wouldn't I? And then obviously the fact that in Europe it is legal and it's actually um, receiving quite a lot of success. So um, I think we just need to do. I don't know what the answer is, actually. I feel like I've just got to the end and got nowhere. But um, yes, we definitely need to do more. And I think, then you know, there needs to just be more about and there needs to be more um, penalties. I'm with you. And it feels like you you can almost argue knife crime and and selling machetes to teenagers is probably a bad idea. So let's not do that because people are dying on our streets. I mean, is this really much different? I am with John on this and I do believe they are inevitable. But I do think we need the controls and mechanisms in place to make this safe for everyone that participates. Um, Otherwise, you're just going to end up with more and more of these. And we've covered over the last couple of years, you know, driving whilst drunk on these things. We've seen, I saw one in London last time I was in London with, I think, three people on an e-scooter. It's just, you can't take a lack of common sense, an illegal device, physical things that move at 30 miles an hour and not think that people aren't going to get die or get seriously injured. So I I do worry about it. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near it soon. We've got to speed up our route to getting these things out there safely. But safely, as you said, even then there's bigger wood to chop or fish to fry or whatever our favourite phrase of the day might be. Um, There's a lot to do and go sort out here. I just worry that we let the toothpaste out of the tube and it's never going back. So it's going to be a really hard one to go fix on this one. Next up, mandatory insurance coverage for medical cannabis now expands to more than 50 million Colombians. Um, Starting January 1st, 2022, every insurance provider in Colombia is now mandated to cover the costs of high and low THC medical cannabis prescriptions. This significantly improves the current insurance coverage process, simplifying the procedure and reducing approval times for patients to obtain insurance coverage across the country. 
Colombia has upwards of 6 million potential patients for medical cannabis products, and more than 97% of the population is covered with health insurance. In 2021, the company filed almost 52,000 medical cannabis prescriptions in Colombia, nine times more than in 2020, and over 60% of the product was sales were covered by insurance under the previous coverage rules. Uh, a little bit more behind this one for everyone's benefit. Uh, Kirian is a leading vertically integrated international medical cannabis company with core operations in Latin America and Europe. I guess, Robin, if I can start with you. I mean, we're seeing cannabis, I'm going to say everywhere it feels like now. I was, as, I was out in the States last week, or sorry, before Christmas, and you can't turn a corner without smelling it. It's now, now legal in many places. Obviously, this is prescription-based. Do we see this now being relaxed country to country, do you think? And does that introduce new opportunities and challenges for insurers out there? Well, uh, no, with no personal comment on if it makes sense to uh, legalize that or not, even though the new government in Germany has announced it's going to legalize it too. Um, I think it's just a fact and a reality that changes the risk profile of our clients. And in, as if we would to change our policies and products and procedures, if, for example, the mortality would change dramatically in life insurance, or if um, claims uh, probability would change in PNC insurance, I think we just need to consider um, that uh, on a scientific, not on a political basis, and on a scientific basis, um, what really changes uh, for risk profile, what risks go up, what risks go down, and to calculate uh, that and to, to put it in our products because it's a new risk emerging, um, a new risk, but a new factor emerging in the risk analysis of our uh, pro products and procedures. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm too old to get excited for that, you know, uh, <laughs> getting high is now illegal. I would also, you know, um, yeah, I think, I think we need, just need to deal with it. It's always an interesting link back to our previous story. This is something that's been illegal, illegal for so long that's now legal. I wonder if there's, I mean, there's going to be a huge opportunity globally for e-scooter insurance. Is the same true, I guess, Sophie, from an investor perspective around cannabis and that sort of good stuff going forward? Oh, huge, huge. The amount of investment that's pouring into this at the moment is absolutely massive from sort of farms that produce it to procurement, to supply chain, to products. You know, I think it's really interesting. We're definitely seeing this shift from war against drugs to a more kind of holistic understanding of where the benefits lie. Um, I was listening to something on the news the other day that was saying that I think it was Canada starting to implement safe houses where you can go and take drugs in a safe place and have medical professionals look over you and make sure you don't overdose. And, and so I think, you know, with this evolving landscape, insurers do need to kind of catch up. But I, I, I agree with Robin that, that, you know, we're still quite early on in the scientific studies behind and, and actually scientific evidence behind this stuff being working in specifically within health settings. It started um, and there are some interesting positive first results. But for example, the NHS in the UK don't prescribe cannabis because they, they think that there isn't enough medical and scientific backing yet to start prescribing it as a drug. So I think we're in the early days, but I think if insurers, you know, it's a good to kind of get ahead of this because it's a, it's a wave that's coming. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I was just about to ask, John, maybe one for you. Do you think this is something that Europe and the UK will follow in 
as in as in net result back to safety is coming about the NHS potentially I, I think that's there's almost a political argument before you get to the medical argument first I think it's almost government by government you'd first of all have to relax some of the legalization and some of the laws and then it might follow suit and that will almost depend on what government comes in uh, and the voters so I do think there's a political angle before you get to the medical angle um, with this um, before it expands into Europe. But you could see, I guess, if some liberal government's getting coming in, um, it starts to get on the uh, on the agenda for conversation. And I, I guess where I was going with that, I guess in Colombia specifically, and we we've all got perceptions of of Colombia potentially on on drugs and elsewhere. But the medical side of this specifically. All insurance companies are mandated to cover medical cannabis in Colombia with less paperwork and hassle for patients. So that's good if you need uh, medical cannabis. And with the inclusion of medical cannabis in the mandatory health coverage plan, should we expect these trends to continue to grow further, I guess? And it's that they're the sorts of things that, you know, we're making it easy now. We're taking out the friction wherever possible just to make it this like any other medicine. I do look to countries like this and say, is that where we're going to follow? Because ultimately... If the studies do back it up, Sophie, to your point, then frankly, there's no reason why Europe, UK and elsewhere all all follow suit. I guess the other thing for me, though, here is I don't want to say experimental drugs. I don't don't actually know what the word is, but do you believe health? There's hesitance with insurance companies covering either medical cannabis or other things that haven't got this proof. Rob, I don't know if you've seen anything again in region to say, you know, trial drugs are always in the news for not being covered by either the NHS here in the UK or by big insurance companies. At what point, given that the cycle for drugs is usually quite long, at what point do they come out of that early stage and get actually to benefit saving someone's, just one person's life, and then insurance companies start picking them up? Well, um, you have here procedures um, for these cases to um, um, to pay or to at least um, get um, uh, experimental um, drugs, but those are you know provided by professional pharmaceutical companies. They are fast track things. There are you know certain you know requirements that don't don't need to be met um, when it's a super small target group that would be underserved. But we have the problem of of, um, of uh, drugs um, or of sicknesses and uh, that are not being treated or where there are not so much development is taking place because it's not uh, it's not uh, feasible economically. But what I want to say to to go to the cannabis discussion, I think it's a big big difference if it's really a prescription drug for very severe sicknesses. Think about cancer patients that, you know, cannot um, take uh, traditional uh, painkillers anymore and who go for the down that route, which is, you know, and in this pharmaceutical cannabis is, um, you know, highly um, regulated and there are high barriers to, to get those, you know, then there's a whole different discussion for the insurance industry. Um, as if, you know, you just go to your friend doctor who gives you a little bit of thing and then you go to the shop and you get high all day. Total different ballpark. If it's scenario number one, I think uh, cannabis could be the, have a role of any new uh, uh, pharmaceutical drug, which I think almost close to no consequences for, you know, calculating risk. 
if it's becoming a lifestyle drug publicly available like um, cigarettes or alcohol then there we should i think uh, recalculate that but probably we should write an you know um an, an underwriter or um uh, insurance mathematician yeah I, i'm with you and the reason i brought it up i guess was i look at what's going on on the opioid crisis in north america right now and, and what's happened there and what the impact from the insurance perspective is as well it's an interesting one to watch as you say the key thing here is these are prescription rather than anything else but back to Sophie's point I still may I'm, maybe I'm just being old-fashioned but I, I look at it and go well do we know what the, the downstream effects of this might be and and then what things that we'll pick up going forward but if it's medical and for medical reasons it's a whole different conversation as they said themselves this, this unprecedented regulatory framework update will create one of the largest insured markets for medical cannabis in the world to help position Chiron as a leading company in the industry worldwide so it's a huge opportunity I think One of the things I, I continue to learn is that wherever there's a change in framework, whether it be price comparison websites, e-scooters, or in this case, medical cannabis, there's an insurance opportunity. So it's it's a really interesting thing that keeps reminding me of why our industry is so great. With that, we're going to move on. And as we get into the end of the show, let's round up some of the other stories this week that we don't have time to cover in full but still deserve a quick shout out. John, do you want to start? Yeah, I'll give a quick overview on this one. So... Over 10,000 taxis could see insurance policies terminated in Hong Kong. So it's been reported that Hong Kong's taxi service is at stake with the 10,000 are going to be terminated. Uh, Target Insurance, an insurance holding with 60% of the taxi insurance segment, has said it could terminate the policies due to commercial reasons. The insurer has said that it's going to have to stop renewals of existing taxi insurance to protect its profitability after an involuntary suspension of its foreign currency investments. It's yet to confirm the cancellations. Meanwhile, the insurance authority has said it's liaised with Hong Kong Federation of Insurers and other insurance firms to formulate plans to allow the affected taxi owners to be insured by other th firms. Um, I mean, my, my take on this is insurers make money from both prudent underwriting, uh, but also their investments. And if its investments are suspended, that's going to put enormous pressure on its core business. Uh, it doesn't speculate why uh, it's just been suspended. Um, For me, it appears we're getting to a bit of gamesmanship and, and who blinks first in this in this argument. Uh, unfortunately, the taxi drivers are caught in the middle, uh, which is their livelihood. So I, I hope they can continue or the insurance is quickly switched over to a, a rival. Really interesting one. Let me follow up, if I may. I, I'm not sure this is a surprise or probably news anymore. Um, European floods in mid-July cost insurers $12 billion, topping the non-US events in 2021. Uh, this from the Insurance Journal. The most significant non-US loss event in 2021 was actually the mid-July flooding in Western Europe, according to Cresta, the Zurich-based insurance industry that, that provides a global standard for risk aggregation zones and catastrophe industry losses. The event generated a total loss of $12 billion, up from $11, uh, the first estimate three months ago. While the number of international cat events exceeded a billion, industry loss in 2021 is not unusual, said Cresta, but the accumulated loss of 21.6 billion is above the long-term average of 13.7. Such events could become more frequent, driven by higher temperatures and increased water holding capacity in the atmosphere, as well as the use of impenetrable surface materials as part of urban development and infrastructure construction, which prevent water drainage into the soil, the organisation noted. I think this just screams of climate change, global warming, and so much more. And I can't for a minute believe this is going to slow down anytime soon, unfortunately. Uh, we all watched with 
I don't want to say horror, but we all watch with disbelief in some instances of things like COP26 that went on recently or the back end of last year. It's here and now. And our time to start changing these things, if not has passed, is definitely now. Um, we're just going to see these sorts of catastrophes increase time and time again. We've seen the world is burning in some cases. If you There's some great documentaries out there right now that look at Australia, Europe, California and the wildfire uh, catastrophes that we have. I think this is no different. And it will be a, a, such a frequent event that uh, our kids and our kids' kids will have to work out what we do with these things going forward. But I have a short question. I mean, we have seen the horrible floods in, in Germany with 29 billion uh, euros of damages. And to be quite honest, of course, climate change uh, is happening. Don't get me wrong. But uh, we had there a combination out of bad planning, disastrous infrastructure, disastrous political uh, decisions and completely failure of government structures. It's always easy in certain damages to end 180 people lost their lives, you know, and I think it's uh, it's sometimes easy to just say, oh, it's climate change. Let's have a long term plan to cover up your political uh, or in this case, the German political uh, complete failure of, you know, so many things. I think we as insurance industry, we should be very cool and calm and look at these things. Don't get me wrong. I totally see climate change, but sometimes it's just as the human F you. <laughs> uh, but, but your point's really interesting. And I, I remember Oliver Ralph from the FT being on the show a while back. And we were talking about floodplains in the UK and houses flooding. And the answer is, don't approve houses to be built on floodplains. It's quite simple. You know, in the same way, don't let scooters be on the road and, and crack down on them. And then people won't die in illegal activity. Let's finish with this one uh, as a slightly left field uh, one. I'm going to get this gentleman's name wrong, I'm sure. Lil Uzi Vert, who I have to say I've never heard of, said his insurance company nearly cut him off over forehead diamond piercing. So first and foremost, Sophie, Robin, John, have you heard of Lil Uzi Vert? No. Nope. I would love to say yes, but I'm going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that just sums it up. I've clicked through them. This is from uh, New Music uh, NME. Uh, Lil Uzi Vert has shed new light on his infamous forehead diamond piercing, claiming his insurance company tried to cut him off over it. Speaking on the Scuffed podcast on December 10th, the rapper revealed that his insurance company tried to cut him off after he had a pink diamond, wait for it, worth $24 million, pierced in his head in February. My insurance company tried to cut me off. They were like, this kid's trying to kill himself. So I really had to call them and show them this is literally just a piercing. Uzi said he'd never considered the piercing would have implications on his insurance. I never even thought about my insurance company. He said, like my life insurance, I just started living life. I'm like, what are they calling for? Expletive. Um, a, what are you doing with a $24 million diamond in your forehead? I think we've got lots of other uses for that money right now, but uh, each to their own. Sophie, what do you think? Should, should the insurance company have even got involved or what would you do with $24 million? One, like, who is doing that as well? <laughs> who is the person who is piercing someone's head with a diamond? I honestly, the insurance company must have been like, we've got to, let's just, let's just call them up. Come on. We've got to speak to this person. Yeah, utterly, utterly nuts. Um, but I imagine as uh, as an insurance company, one of the more interesting things that you you deal with, maybe on a day so. I think there's a very valid point. We've always had lots of interesting things in insurance. And like Lloyds of London, this is no different. Robin, what do you want to say? What say you? Well, I think it's a very sad uh, symbol of um, 
financial literacy, to be quite honest. I mean, we have people and why are people poor uh, all through all, all around the world? But, you know, we are also dealing in our B2C arm with financial literacy, financial freedom, and we see it over and over again. Why are lottery winners getting broke? Why are rappers getting broke? Why are soccer players getting broke? Uh, because they suddenly get rich, but they cannot deal and handle man money. And this is another example. If you have $24 million in, the, in, in, a, in, a, in non an asset that doesn't produce cash flow in these times, and you don't have people around you who help you uh, to invest this money. You, I, I'm, I'm making a bet in 10 years, Lil Uzi Vert will be broke because of things like that. And it's not his insurance who's broke. And I think this is a very sad example uh, that we need to educate our people more about how to make money, how to do it. And what would I do with $24 million? I would do something very boring. Uh, buy me 70 million euro dollars of real estate. I love it. John, come on, bring us home on this one. What, what would you have done in this situation? What would you do with $24 million? Um, I certainly wouldn't put a diamond in my forehead. I mean, going back to the insurance angle, I'd love to see if he actually declared that or he just called them up and said, I've had my $24 million diamond taken out of my head. So it'd be interesting to know if he declared it up front. I mean, what he does with his money is entirely up to him. And, you know, it is a physical asset. He could always sell it in the future. So, so fantastic. What would I do with 24 million? Yeah, probably probably buy a house. Uh, I'd be very boring, but I, I currently rent. So for me, that would be the first thing, top of the cards. I think that sums up us lovely insurance people quite happily, and I'm very proud of it. Uh, he, he did go on and say, if I put it into a ring you and lost it, you'd just laugh at me. Uh, and then they did say, if he doesn't reject it, or if it doesn't reject it, back to his skin and his forehead, It'll be the best you only live once piercing success in the history of piercing, said Matt Mayfield, a piercer at Love Adorned in New York. But the size and weight and shape of the stone alone isn't going to lend a hand, no pun intended, in the healing process. However, if cared for properly and it heals, Uzi and his otherworldly accessories will be good to go. He can move his forehead freely to do some headbanging, whatever. You all can't see this, but Robin's actually got his head in his hand, sands a $24 million diamond. One point in the story that we need to tell the listeners is that he did get it ripped out of his head at a gig. So, you know, like, it wasn't, it wasn't the best thing to be, be done. There was a risk there, funnily enough, having a 24 million thing in your forehead. I can safely confirm to all the listeners, my family and friends, I shall have nothing pierced in my forehead whatsoever at any time soon. Maybe I'm just super boring. Uh, with that, that wraps up the new show for this time. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about you, Sophie? So you can find me on Twitter at Sophie Winwood, or if you want to find out more about Anthemus, or if you're an interesting startup and you're seeking funding, um, head to anthemus.com or you can email me at Sophie Anthemus. Fantastic. Robin? Uh, if you are an insurer bank that wants to revive its marketing or sales, then contact me at digitalscouting.de. We help insurers around the world. And if you want to be entertained, go to our newest TikTok channel and join 314,000 uh, people. I still can't believe you're on TikTok. And whenever I go on, you or Bobby at Benny Kiva are the first people I see. And I absolutely love it. But no, you won't find me on there anytime soon. Maybe. Uh, and John, where will we find you? Please say TikTok. <laughs> I'm not on TikTok, but Robin, I'm definitely going to be signing up to your TikTok. Um, you can find me at uh, John Bean at LinkedIn or through the 11FS uh, website. Fantastic. I look forward to subscribing to your TikTok channel any day soon, John. And you can find me on Twitter at Nigel Walsh, probably giving out about diamonds or scooters. 
Thank you to all my guests and thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make the show better and helps others find it too. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11 colon FS or InsureTech Insider. Find us on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders or email podcast at 11fs.com. Until next time, thanks very much and goodbye. <laughs>